Hey guys, um, my name is Daniel and I'm a third year physiology student. Uh, today we're going to be reading uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 1 to 17. You can find the, the reading in your little um, booklet. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the Holy Spirit, who through the holiness, through the Spirit of holiness is appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. For his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from Jesus, uh, from God our Father and from Jesus, from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to, to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want to be unaware. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I may have harvest, have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel, also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, and just as it is written, the righteousness, the righteous will live by faith. Well, just imagine for a moment that you walk into UWA one day and you discover that God is just smashing out miracles, just left, right and centre. Uh, students who uh, students are being healed, students in wheelchairs are standing up and walking, uh, those of your friends you know who have got mental illness are suddenly perfectly fine again. And it's all happening in the name of Jesus. Or imagine that... Um, you wander into your philosophy lecture and uh, suddenly the Christians in the philosophy lecture start piping up and they start asking questions of the lecturer and making points that he just can't have any comeback on. They're just smashing it, just nailing it. Atheist lecturers trembling before them. Now, it's the stuff of undergrad Christian fantasies, isn't it? People... <laughs> People make movies about it. <laughs> or what if, uh, what if at the next Guild elections, 
somehow God oversaw things so that suddenly all the Christians were elected to positions on the guild. Suddenly they were in, in total control. The guild decides to change the shape of Prosh. And Prosh becomes renowned as a festival of holiness and righteousness. <laughs> the Pelican becomes a student newspaper devoted to the glory of God. Wouldn't you love to see that? Wouldn't you love to see the power of God at work at UWA? Well, if you want to experience the power of God, then the Apostle Paul is your man. See, he introduces himself in the first sentence of this letter to the Christians in Rome, and he says that he is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, um, set apart for the gospel of God. Let me just sort this microphone out. It's driving me nuts. Okay, that's better. Uh, He's Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, this is the Paul, the guy who had been an opponent of the early Christians, that he'd been persecuting them, he'd been arresting them. And in at least one case that we know of, he'd been looking on with approval as a Christian man was stoned to death by a mob. This is the Paul who has experienced the power of God, who met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, blinded by the brilliance of the light and shocked by the truth that Jesus actually was the resurrected Messiah, that he is God's long-promised king. This is the Paul who did signs and wonders, who healed the sick and the lame, who cast out demons and even raised a young man from the dead. This Paul, this intellectual giant, the greatest student of the greatest rabbi, Gamaliel, one of the greatest minds of his generation. This Paul, the strategic genius of early Christianity, who masterminded the preaching of the gospel, the early missions to Palestine and Turkey and Greece. This Paul, who in verses 10 to 15 tells them that he is coming to visit them in Rome, the eternal city, the heart of the empire, the home of Caesar. And when you hear that, you think, well, fasten your seatbelts because this is going to be good. This is going to be the power of God at work. But notice what Paul says in verse 8 then, in chapter 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because now we can establish a political lobby group next to the palace. Uh, No. Verse 10, I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be opened for me to persuade Caesar to force everyone to behave like Christians. Oh, no, that's not right. No, actually, when you look at it, there's, there's nothing like that there. Paul doesn't mention the political significance of Rome. He doesn't thank God for the potential for serious political influence. No, what he thanks him for is that the faith of the Roman Christians is being reported all over the world. Seems like the power of God isn't actually about politics. 
But then, you know, politics is a little bit worldly. It's not really very spiritual. Maybe experiencing the power of God is actually more about signs and wonders and spiritual gifts. I mean, after Paul, after all, Paul says in verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. And you think, awesome, here we go. Spiritual gifts. Let's see Paul cranking out some miraculous healing. Let's see the Roman church just bursting out in tongues. That will blow some Roman minds. Except it turns out that the spiritual gift that Paul wants to impart in verse 12 is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. What do you mean, Paul? Do you mean that we'll get together and we'll be encouraged by how much each other's faith just overflows into miracles and signs and wonders? Oh, no, that's, no, no, I wasn't really thinking of that. I was more thinking that when I finally get to Rome, we'll be really encouraged by the fact that we're all trusting in Jesus together. Really? Like, that's it? Uh, yeah? Huh. The power of God doesn't seem to be about miracles either. Well, maybe the power of God is actually about having a really successful strategy. You know, if we can just come up with an awesome plan, if we can just get something like this together, get all our ducks in a row, actually pull it off, then God's power will just be unleashed. And Paul did have a strategic plan. It just didn't work. He says in verse 13, I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. And in chapter 15, he goes on to explain how he's planning to come to Rome so that he can launch out on a mission to Spain. And he does get to Rome but only because he got arrested in Jerusalem and he's taken there in chains. And he ends up being executed there. He never reaches Spain. Paul had a strategy, but the power of God doesn't seem to be about strategy either. So what about experiencing God's power intellectually? What about those watertight arguments that we're going to whip out in our philosophy classes? Will God display his power through Paul just dazzling the Roman philosophers? Well, no, not really. He says in verse 14, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, to the cultured and the bogans, to the professors and the dropouts. The power of God doesn't seem to be about intellectual arguments either. So if God's power isn't about politics or miracles, strategy or intellect, then what is it? How do you get to experience God's power? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he? It's right there in verse 16. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And there it is. Do you want to experience the power of God? Well, don't look to politics or miracles or strategy or intellect. Look to the gospel, says Paul. The gospel is the power of God. Why is that? What is the gospel anyway? 
Well, gospel just means big news, and Paul tells us in the first few verses of his letter what the big news is all about. He says in verse 1 that he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And he goes on to explain that this gospel, this big news, is what God had promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament. And it's news about God's Son, descended from David, the one whose kingdom God promised would endure forever and ever, whose throne would be established for all time. And the big news that Paul is proclaiming is that that has happened. The king that God had promised, the Messiah, the Christ, has come. How do we know that? Well, says Paul, we know it because God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, has appointed Jesus as the Messiah by raising him from the dead. Who's the king who is reigning forever and ever? He's the king who doesn't die. And there's only one of them, only one guy descended from David who has defeated death, who was raised to God's right hand, conqueror of death, never to die again. Jesus is the Christ, he says. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord. And that is big news. God has put Jesus, his death-defeating king, on the throne, and he will reign forever and ever. Who controls your future? Is it the university? The guy or the girl that you're infatuated with? No, it's Jesus. Who ultimately do you have to give an account to? Is it your parents, the police, the courts? No, it's Jesus. Who holds the power of life and death? The biotech companies, the government, the Islamic State? No. Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is big news. That is the gospel. You won't hear about it in your lectures, but this is what it's all about. This is what the whole history of the world pivots on is that Jesus is the resurrected Lord. He is ruling over everything. And that's why the gospel is so powerful. At first glance, it doesn't seem powerful. It's not about miracles. It's not about intellectual power. It's not about knock-down arguments or politics. But it is immensely powerful. Because, verse 16... It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone. Whether they're black or white, male or female, good or bad. Whether they're UWA students or Curtin students. Whether they're medical students or art students. I didn't say which one was better. (laughs) Everyone. It is the power for everyone to be saved. Saved from God's anger at turning our backs on him. Let me tell you about a uni student. It's a true story. 
uni student sitting alone in his college room studying. And he's been a steadfast atheist. He's rejected Jesus as a crutch, just a, an idea that weak people need to survive. Something foolish. Christianity is just a myth and not even a particularly interesting one. What did he want? Well, in his own words, he says, I'd always wanted above all things not to be interfered with. I wanted to call my soul my own. And that's the problem. We want to call our souls our own. See what Paul says in verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the situation that the Christians in Rome are in now, but it tells you about what their situation was before. You can just reverse engineer the sentence. If they are loved by God, called to be saints... They have grace and peace from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ now. Well, what did they have before? What situation were they in? Well, no experience of God's love. They weren't saints. They weren't holy. Without God's grace and without God's peace. Why? Because they were at war with God. That's what all of us are naturally like. We're enemies of God and of his king because we want to be in charge of ourselves. That is, we want to be God of ourselves. But we're not. We're not God. We delude ourselves. We try to delude ourselves. But reality just keeps sneaking up and hitting us. We are not in charge of our own souls. We are not God. And our attitude, our turning our back on God, makes him angry, rightly. And because that is the problem, the gospel is powerful. See, politics never made anyone loved by God. Miracles don't make people holy. Strategy doesn't cause God to pour out his grace. And intellectual arguments have never brought peace between us and God. But trusting Jesus does. That changes everything. Trusting Jesus brings all those things. Love and holiness, grace and peace. And the gospel brings us news of that. It brings us the offer of that salvation. The gospel is God's power for salvation. Have a look at verse 17. This is how it does it. Because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And the gospel doesn't reveal that we are righteous. We're pretty obviously not. Nor does it simply reveal that God is righteous. I mean, that is true, but it's not news. It's always been true. No, what the gospel reveals is that we can receive a righteous status from God. That we can be declared not guilty by God. Not guilty by the judge of the universe. Not because we've been really good. Not because we've tried really hard. Not because we've done our time. But 
simply as a gift, received purely by believing the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if we believe that, God declares us innocent. In spite of our behaviour, we have no case to answer. And that is big news. If you are in trouble with God, if you are his enemy, and you hear the news that you can be right with him, that is amazing. I don't know if you realise how amazing that is, but if you are in trouble with God, you are stuffed. It doesn't matter what you do. You cannot be good enough for him. You cannot earn his approval. You cannot beat him or overthrow him. If you are in trouble with God, if you are his enemy, then the gospel is very good news. So can I ask you, do you believe it? It actually transforms people from being enemies of God into his children. Not guilty. At peace with him. Rejoicing in his grace. Confident about our future. Growing in holiness. But what else can do that? Politics? (laughs) Not a chance. Philosophy? No. Miracles? No, they can't do it either. Only the gospel can do that. And it does. It does do it. It did it with the Apostle Paul. And if you're a Christian, you know it did it with you as well. You believed the gospel and you came to know God as your Father, Jesus as your Saviour. It did it with you. And it did it with that young man who was sitting in his college room. Like I said, he'd been a determined atheist, determined to call his soul his own. Yet he made the fatal mistake of having Christian friends. People who actually did believe the gospel. Who knew Jesus as Lord, who knew God as their father. And who shared the news with him. He'd heard it before. He'd rejected it many times. And yet night after night, studying at his desk. Whenever his mind lifted from his work, he said he felt the steady, unrelenting approach of the God he so earnestly desired not to meet. C.S. Lewis writes, That which I greatly feared had come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, probably the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. He goes on, I did not see then what is now the most shining and obviously true thing, the divine humility which will accept converts even on such terms. Now imagine how good it would be if that happened to your friends this semester, to your classmates. Imagine that each of us in our own little way are inviting people along to the Getting Life events, having conversations about Jesus with the people that we meet, giving them the opportunity to hear the gospel and believe, to grapple with their rebellion against God, to realise their need and to hear about God's solution. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be amazing if people right across UWA, science students and art students, engineers and architects, commerce and chemistry, experienced God's 
incredible power for salvation this semester. The thing is that they can. And by God's grace, they will. I think we often struggle to invite people along to stuff or to share the gospel with them because deep down we are ashamed of the gospel. It just doesn't seem that powerful. I mean, getting a huge Christian political party up and running, well, that looks powerful. Amazing miracles, that looks powerful. Just knock down arguments in philosophy lectures, that looks powerful. Gospel doesn't look powerful. And sometimes we feel ashamed. We worry that it won't do the job. Well, that's why in verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. When do you say that? When do you say to someone, I'm not ashamed of? You only ever say it when they think you ought to be ashamed of it. Like my parents, I am not ashamed of my son. Why do they say that? (laughs) There you go. It's a puzzle. (laughs) It's so easy to be ashamed of the gospel. It's not obviously spectacular or powerful. You think, my friends would never believe that. But actually, you did, didn't you? If you're a Christian. And millions, if not billions of people across the world and across history have believed the gospel as well. The gospel is powerful. It does save. And so Paul does have a strategy. It's to preach the gospel. He does head to the heart of the political empire to proclaim the gospel. He does intend to impart a spiritual gift to be mutually encouraged with the Romans by each other's faith in the gospel. He is a towering intellect, but he doesn't just speak to uh, the wise. He also proclaims the gospel to the foolish. Because the gospel is the power of God. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe it is the power to save? I think you have to if you're a Christian, don't you? You must do. Don't be ashamed. Look around you and have a look at the people that it has saved. As we head out this week, as we talk to people this semester, as we pray and invite and pray some more, Let's remember, let's remind each other that the gospel is the power of God. It brings salvation to everyone who believes. And let's pray that by God's grace, we will see that power at work in the lives of people at UWA. Why don't we pray for that now? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your gospel that it is the power to save everyone who believes. And Father, please give us confidence in it. Help us to remember what you have done in our own hearts and minds. Help us to look at what you have done over history. Help us to look to Jesus, Father, the Lord and Saviour. And give us boldness, we pray, that we would hold out the word of life the good news of Jesus to those around us, that by your spirit you might bring them to repentance and faith in your word, faith in your son. And we ask it for his sake. Amen.